Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of end friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, when she was in film school, she took a class about television development and suddenly knew that is exactly what she wanted to do. An internship early on led to a permanent position and slowly she climbed the ranks into comedy development and is responsible for some of the best television that we watch on our screens. I'm so honored to have Emily Rothstein on the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Everyone, my guest today is Emily Rothstein. Emily began her career at ABC Studios, where for nine years she worked in both drama and comedy development, assisting the drama team in the development of such series as American Crime and How to Get Away with Murder, and the comedy team on The Muppets and American Housewife. She has been working at NBC Universal on the comedy development team across all platforms since September 2019, where she is responsible for developing new projects in addition to identifying new voices and emerging talent. She's worked on series such as Wolf Like Me and on the upcoming series based on the Pitch Perfect movie franchise for Peacock, in addition to Mr. Mayor on NBC. I am so thrilled to welcome Emily Rothstein to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Listen, I feel like for listeners all over the globe, getting to kind of understand the other side of the thing that so many of us want to be in, um, it's going to be so enlightening for people, A, how the thing gets made, and also, if this is something someone is interested in, how one way, your pathway anyway, into not just like loving to watch television, but getting to be a part of making television. Right. Um, so can you just sort of take us through, full disclosure, you guys, I've known Emily her entire life. 
So can you just talk us through like how the dream began and how I sit with you today as um, someone who's moving really quickly in the world of being an executive in television? Of course. Um, Well, as you know, I grew up in northern New Jersey, similar to you, Um, and I grew up going to Broadway shows and I loved Broadway um, and just loved everything about it and the performance. And I was always in awe of it. And including when I got to go see you and your good man, Charlie Brown and come up to your dressing room, which was, you know, just a highlight of my life. Um, and I also loved TV and I always loved movies and, um, my family is very into sports in my family. Um, but my grandfather actually used to review, uh, Broadway shows for the New York times. And so he was always, you know, taking me to shows or telling me about all the premieres that he used to go to. And it was just a huge part of my life. And so because I was a middle child and the only girl, I think I always was a little bit more dramatic about things growing up. And so I was, I thought to myself, oh, I'll, I'll be an actress and that's what I'm going to do. And um, Alana, you actually play a part in this that I don't even think you'll ever realize. But when I was in high school, I um, was auditioning for the musical. They did a musical every year. And this year, I think I was a sophomore and it, the show was The Pajama Game. And I was so nervous and I wanted to audition. And my dad called you <laughs> and I came to your apartment and you helped me sing and dance and prepare. And I was terrible. But, you know, I was 14, 15 years old and I ended up getting cut from the show. Uh, I didn't even make it. And it was, it was, I mean, I was a teenager and these, all my friends did it and it was just, it was horrible. Um, And my mom said to me, that's go do something about it. That's, you know, if you want to do it, go ask, go tell them you want to be part of it. What can you do? And so I did. And the director of the show said, well, you can be my assistant. And I said, okay, great, whatever. I just wanted to hang out with my friends. And I became his assistant. I ended up doing that all the rest of my time in high school. And I kind of learned, you know, how to look at performances, how to look at story, how to think about things more critically based on the kind of feedback he, he was giving. So then when I was deciding, okay, where do I want to go to college? What do I want to do with my life? I thought, well, I love art and I love theater, but you know, I also really love TV and I really love movies. I always saw movies. I absorbed TV as a kid. I watched as much of it as humanly possible. It was, you know, something we did together as a family. And I thought, well, maybe I should go to film school and and kind of learn the behind the scenes of what goes into this. And so I applied to a bunch of schools and one of those schools was USC and I applied to the film school, which was, or is, I think still the number one film school in the country. And I thought there's no way I'll get in and it's in Los Angeles. You know what? I'll just do it as for fun. And I got in. (laughs) So I, um, really without thinking about it, I just, I accepted, I hadn't even gone to see the, the school and, you know, my parents were so supportive of me moving across the country and, going to do this crazy thing, but it just felt, you know, like everything kind of aligned that I got in. It was what exactly the major that I wanted. I was really going to get to study something that I loved. And so I went to the film school at SC. I studied, um, the major was called critical studies, which was less production, more 
history analysis of film. And at the time it was really mostly film centric. And I went in knowing I wanted to work in TV and I'm not quite sure exactly why I just loved it. And this was before TV was kind of cool again, like Mad Men had not even started yet, I don't think, but it was kind of like when Mad Men was about to start and all these shows that kind of redefined the new era of television. And I was just very driven in what I wanted to do. And I didn't know what development was. And then I was in a class and they were showing us, I think it was Gossip Girl and Chuck, which I think premiered the same year, both created by Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage. And they came to talk to one of my classes, Josh Schwartz had gone to USC and they talked about the development process and they really explained what it was. And I thought, oh, I could do that. That's creative, but you're not putting pen to paper. You're not in production, et cetera. And I became really focused on doing that. So in college, I got a bunch of internships, both in LA and then when I'd come home to New Jersey or New York for the summer. And then my senior year, I got an internship at ABC Studios. I ended up working there the whole year. And when I graduated, I turned that into a job. Um, So (laughs) it was, again, you know, time and place, but also I... I took full advantage of working there and I really tried to ingratiate myself into the the people. I became friends with everyone. And also I loved what they did and I loved, I absorbed everything and I did anything that was asked of me. I got coffee, I made coffee, I ran errands. I, it was the final season of Lost when I was there and I would carry the scripts across the lot from the writer's room to the studio executive so they could read it and then I'd carry it back so no one would see it. And I just did everything they asked of me and then I got to kind of do cool things and I got to read scripts and I got to listen in on calls and um, just kind of take meetings and learn what the job was. And I think in a lot of ways that became almost like a grad school. I didn't go to grad school. Um, and so I, I got a job right after college, which was great. I stayed in LA and I started building my life there and I ended up working there for almost 10 years, um, rising from intern to assistant to coordinator and then to executive. Um, and then about three years ago, I moved over to NBC. Um, and it's, that's sort of the very short version of, you know, maybe not so short version of quite a long story of how I got to where I am. So when you say development, yeah, tell me what, what does that mean to you? Development is, it's almost like being an editor in some ways, except you're not necessarily crossing things off. It's looking at a script and looking at the story someone wants to tell and helping them tell the best version of that story. Um, It's, does the decision this character is making in this moment make sense to me as a semi-objective reader or consumer of this material? And it's telling the writer what doesn't quite make sense or, you know, what story beats aren't quite working. Maybe the order is off. Maybe the characters aren't resonating with you and you need to know more information about them in order to empathize with them. It's being the person who's kind of looking from the outside into a project and helping the writer and the producers, whoever it is, carry out their vision. When you think about, you know, from intern to being hired to kind of going up in the ranks, as it were, 
are there things that when you were starting out that you still go, oh, I remember when she said this, you know, a certain boss or a certain executive that you're like still using, like, was it a learned experience um, where people's information and, and the way they mentored you impacts how you work today? Or did was it like osmosis where you just breathe in everything or both? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, but I, I really the way I learn, I I like to observe people doing what they do best. And I kind of like to sit back and I observe it. And then I figure out my own way of doing it. I've been really fortunate. I was an assistant for a long time, which a lot of people coming up in this industry are. And I've been really fortunate to have really wonderful bosses and who became mentors and friends. And I listened to their calls. I listened to how they gave notes. I listened to how they handled harder notes to give if something wasn't good. I listened to how, or I observed how they worked with talent. I was fortunate, you know, to be able to go to set a lot, which now is a huge part of my job and see, okay, what's the difference between giving a note on a script you're reading on the page and giving a note when you're on a set and it's happening in front of you. And I really learned by observing all of that and then figuring out, okay, well, how do I do that as me and using my personality? Because especially I've, well, I've only worked for two companies, but I've worked for two massive corporations and between Disney and Comcast. And I think sometimes you can be perceived as, oh, you're just the corporate studio executive or now with NBC, you're the corporate network streaming executive. And I try and infuse my personality into it. A huge part of this industry is just getting to know people. Um, And I think when you get to know people and vice versa, it just helps that professional relationship so much more because they trust you and you've built a rapport with them and they know you're approaching it from, we're on the same team and we all have the same goal. And sometimes you might not like what everyone has to say, but at least you can respect the person saying it. And you know, do what's best based on that. Drama and comedy in the world of television seem like very different beasts to me. I I don't know if the development process is different, but the idea that you have been sort of expert at being able to um, work on both sides of the, you know, of the the aisle, as it were, was there one from the beginning that you always preferred and or are both equally interesting to you? I actually always thought I preferred working in drama. And my first assistant job was on a comedy desk. Um, and then I moved over to the drama team because I, that's really where I thought I wanted to be. I love soaps, you know, I mean, even like daytime, my mom and I used to watch days of our lives when I'd stay homesick from school. But, you know, I I watch, I still watch Grey's Anatomy to this day. You know, I love TV drama. And so when I got to work on that team, um, I really kind of threw myself into it thinking this, this is what I want to do. And through, for a variety of reasons, there wasn't room for growth on the drama side at that time. And there was an opportunity for growth on the comedy team also at ABC Studios. And I had worked with them before and, and they asked me to come back over and, and I did. 
And I thought, oh, I can always go back. And I ended up really just loving comedy. And I think, I think a lot of the, in a lot of ways, they're very similar in terms of how you think about story, in terms of how you think about character. But I also think, and I'm obviously biased, I think comedy is more challenging in a lot of ways because it's so much more subjective. You know, what I find funny is not what you're going to find funny. Right. Well, actually, in 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 your case, yes, it is. But I know you. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> of course, of course. I think everything you think is funny is funny. But the few people okay. who are mistaken, but yes. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, obviously. Um, and especially, too, you know, working a lot, and now I do a lot of streaming shows, but working a lot in broadcast TV, too, you're really trying in comedy to find things that appeal to a massive group of people. Right. And I think with drama, a, a lot, you know, if you're working on a procedural, the episode's over and, you know, the story of that episode is over in 42 minutes minus commercials. If if you're working in comedy in broadcast, you have 21 minutes and 20 seconds to tell an effective story and make people laugh, but also make them fall in love with those characters. And I think that's that can just be really challenging and in a variety of ways. And, you know, part of my job too, I try not to give notes on on jokes, you know, because who am I? I can't write a joke. Um, But I know what I think is funny, but it's also, so it's, and, but sometimes a script comes in and you say, oh, this isn't very funny. And how do you, how do you tell someone that, you know, how do you tell someone who has made their life's work of being a comedy writer? I don't think this is very funny. And it's finding, well, then it's, well, why isn't this funny? Is it because I don't like the character? Is it because the story doesn't really make sense? So it's not allowing me the space to laugh. And it's kind of going, working backwards from there to communicate why it's not working. So at this point, you have been doing this for like almost 15 years, right? Which I find incredible because I think of you as little. (laughs) (laughs) And you are still quite young, which is also what's so cool about what you've accomplished um, straight out of school. It's like incredible. Um, when you are okay, and you talked about streaming versus network. For I mean, now now when you work for these big companies, they have content on every different kind of platform, right? So if it's twenty mm-hmm. something minutes for network television, it's it really is half at half an hour for streaming, right? Like mm-hmm. you're dealing with time yeah. and all of that. Um, I want to talk about like, can you take me through? You know, a lot of well known people get development deals, right? Because they're already established. And so a network or a streaming platform um, wants to work with them and create some sort of deal with them that their content is shopped first to this company, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people kind of know from movies and some television, like the idea of a pitch, where there are people like practicing the pitch and sweating their brains out in a bathroom before they go in to a bunch of, you know, network people who look at them often with like portrayed in comedy with like stone cold (laughs) faces Um, and, you know, sort of like the audition feeling, you know, when we think about what it's like to audition, you know, a bunch of people behind a desk who don't seem happy that you're there auditioning. So Mm -hmm. um, take me through uh, what it is to be pitched to, like what that experience is like from your side with a non- celebrity person like obviously if Tina Fey has a show it's gonna I mean maybe she still pitches things or maybe she just sends a script I don't know how that works but if you're a really funny person who somehow got a producer to love their project and that producer set up 
with an agent, a pitch meeting for Emily Rothstein and others? Like what happens? Uh, well, well, first of all, a lot of people, even people with deals, you know, like a Tina Fey, they're still, they're still pitching things. Sometimes they've already written a spec, which is, a, you know, they've written the script already and we get sent, we get to read it and, and, and like the pilot for the pilot script yeah. for the project. Okay. Exactly. Um, but a lot of people still pitch, especially if you're someone in a deal, maybe you're not writing it yourself. You're bringing in a writer who you are shepherding. Um, and that person pitches. Um, it's funny you say that because I always get annoyed when I see the portrayal of, of executives on TV and because I, I do try and I, I hope I'm good at it. I don't know. I've never seen myself in a pitch, but I do try and, you know, be, you know, reactive in a pitch. Um, especially since we've been doing them virtually, um, I can't oh, that's imagine. Right. I haven't even yeah. thought about that. Right. In the room, it's it's so different. And there's, you know, there's an energy and there's people and maybe you're fake laughing every now and then, but you're laughing. On Zoom, you're on mute um, and it's awkward and it's quiet. And so I've tried really hard to like smile and, you know, whatever I can do to make it feel warm and inviting because I know that people put so much effort into these pitches and I couldn't do it. So I, I feel for them. And when I worked at the studio too, a huge part of my job at the studio was helping, was selling, was bringing pitches out to the marketplace. And so I know what it's like sitting on the other side and looking, having the network executives look at you. So now that I am on that side of buying, I try and be very, you know, effusive. Um, because ABC Studios wasn't when you were there the the previous job of many years. Yes, yes. that was not ABC Network. You were not the yes. buyers. You were like an arm of ABC that also tried to sell shows. Yeah, so ABC Studios, which actually is now called ABC Signature, okay. is a totally different. It's it's within the same parent company, which is Disney, um, but they operate as a, their own studios. So. We were selling, of course, to ABC and Disney Plus and all the, you know, Disney owned platforms. But we also sold to all the other broadcast networks and to the streaming platforms. That's probably changed since I've been there. A lot of it, you know, the industry changes by the second. Um, But at the time, we were selling things everywhere. And so you're both buying things that come in at the studio, but you're buying them thinking, can I sell this to the distribution platform of our choice? And when um, you were doing that, were you ever the person who had to talk in the meeting and and pitch the show? Or would you more like, what was your role in pitches at that point? I didn't pitch the show. I would be the person who would set it up. I'd come in and say, we're so excited to bring you Alana Levine. You know, she has this very personal pitch and we think it'd be perfect for your platform because X, Y, Z, here you go. Here's so, Alana. Yeah. Right. You're the cheerleader. Okay. Um, you're the Would hype, you have worked with me? <laughs> you, thanks for being my hype person. You're I'm welcome. so excited about the show that we're developing. Yes. <laughs> so, so if we were doing the untitled Alana Levine project and you, Emily Rothstein, were the, the producing representative of sure. ABC studios of this show, would you have worked with me on the pitch beforehand? Yes. Yes. So, you so we would, yes, we would give thoughts on the pitch. 
um, help kind of create, a, you know, the structure or whatever it might be. Sometimes you tailor it for the platform that you're pitching it to. If you know that they're looking for one thing in particular, um, you know, being at a studio in TV, you're kind of, you're sort of the connector of all the different people. You're kind of, you're, you'd have to know what the buyers want, but you also have to know how to talk to the talent. You're hearing things in very raw form that are kernels of ideas and thinking, can I make this into something? And now at the network where I am now, or I should stop saying the network because I'm at a network and a platform, but at NBC Universal, where I am now, you're on the buying side of something. You're hearing something that has already gone through a lot of steps before it's even reached you. So it's, okay, you know, in a certain, it's, it's more fully formed, if that makes sense. Um, and you're deciding not just do I like this, but is it a show that feels right for NBC or is it a show that feels right for Peacock? And sometimes we hear amazing pitches that we all love, but we know that it's not necessarily the right fit for the content that we're programming on either of those platforms and we have to pass. And that's because a really- you know, you know what your audience is, who your audience is. Exactly. You know who the audience is. You know- the upcoming shows on both platforms and and the other development that you have and how many slots or, you know, whatever shows you're able to make. Um, There's a number of reasons. And so you, you a lot of times have to separate your own feelings from what you're buying. But I think the sweet spot when you buy something is when it's something you love and you know that it's right. And sometimes it might not be the obvious thing. It might not be the show you said you were looking for. It could be, you know, this show Wolf Like Me that I that's uh, on Peacock now and we just picked up for a second season was sort of the opposite of what we said we were buying or looking to do. And it came in as a spec and, and I read it, my boss read it, and my team read it. And we all just said, this is amazing. This is great. This is like real storytelling with really compelling characters and it's bending a genre or blending multiple genres actually. And we think this is unique and we think this can stand out and we want to do this. And we did. So that doesn't happen with every project, but it can happen with some. And and those are the things that feel, you know, just so special and different because you just, you ha- it, it sticks with you and you can't get it out of your head and you find a way to make it. Do you think that pitches are going to be, uh, going back to in-room meetings where everyone's together or has the network or the platform or whatever we're calling it gone, you know what, this works really well for us to continue the Zoom model. What What's happening in that world now? It's a great question. Um, we're, we actually have gone back into the office three days a week, um, okay. but still do every external meetings virtually. I don't know. I, I think... If there's a world where, you know, it's safe and comfortable to have 10 people in a room from various parts of the city or wherever, I think maybe, I think maybe there's a hybrid version where some people might be more comfortable pitching on on Zoom. It's evolved even in the two-ish years we've been doing it in terms of people using the technology in different ways. I also think it's allowed for us to hear pitches from people who maybe we wouldn't normally have heard from um, or gotten FaceTime with talent if they live overseas or they live in another part of the country. Um, 
and for bigger name producers, there's a lot of actors, famous actors who have, who are producers as well, who don't always have the time to come in person to Universal City to sit in a room and pitch something, but they can do it on Zoom. So I, I like I like both versions of it. Um, I do think that when you pitch in a room, there is, especially in a comedy, there there is a certain energy that you can't necessarily replicate on Zoom. But I, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. I, I think maybe a hybrid version of it is is in the future. What makes for a great pitch for someone's listening, for people listening, for your masterclass? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um I think it's the storytelling. I think it's so much of it is in is in the setup and I think really hooking in your audience of why you want to do this show, why it's important. Um, even if it's a show that's six friends hanging on a couch in a coffee shop, we've all seen that before, but why my version of it or why your version of it is unique and unlike anything we've ever seen before. And then I think it's having characters who feel really specific and defined and who connect with each other in a way that feels natural. Um, and being able to just tell your story. And I think, again, I think everyone has a different version of this. So this is, I'm speaking me, Emily Rothstein. Um, I think sometimes people go too into too much of the, the detail uh, or every single beat of a script of a story or something. And I think in some cases that might be appropriate, but I think keeping it more as a sales tool of here's the story I want to tell. Here's some examples of how these characters will interact in future stories. Here's a rundown of what the pilot episode might look like. Um, and then kind of wrap it up in summation, talk about, the themes that, you know, you want the show to explore. Um, and I think also on the comedy side, explain your comedic tone um, or use the, your comedic tone through your pitch of how, you know, no, I don't mean that to mean, you know, read dialogue that you've already written, but I mean, you know, show us who you are, show us your voice and your perspective on the world, um, you know, while you have us, you know, captured for 20 minutes. Is that about how long a comedy pitch is? Yeah, 2025. I've never done a comedy pitch. I have no idea. Um, okay, so about 2025. Is is a drama pitch longer? Does it I match the length of the content? I don't think so. Okay. I, I haven't been in a drama pitch in a, in a long time, but I don't, you know, we block off an hour. Uh, that's that's the inside scoop. But yeah. I'd say most, most pitches, you know, are over 40, 45 minutes, in, including small talk and questions and, uh, and also leave room for questions. And, and most yeah. people do that. But, um, you know, it, sometimes it's better to leave some things off the pitch pages and let let the buyer ask you those questions to see. And and I think a, a good studio partner, a good producing partner is going to be able to help you to shape it and to know right. what's best to include and what's best to leave for them to ask. Sometimes if you give too much information, it can backfire because then Ooh. I start to give notes in my head. Okay, well, this doesn't work and I don't like that story. And this, so it's a really fine line oh between, I know I'm making it There's sound There's surgical so precision. No, but that is, it is also delicate, right? Like it's yeah. also delicate. The process of, of creativity, um, trying to share your creativity with others in a way that 
works in a in a selling situation mm-hmm. versus when the thing is done. Even the idea, I think so much about like auditioning can be so hard for a part that you could do in your sleep if you were just offered it, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about the adrenaline and yeah. the um the the knowledge of of the the make or break financially moment you're walking into. I mean, there's so much that people carry with them beyond like, here's this thing. I wrote it. I made it. I love it. I hope you love it. This is why I love it. I hope it's the right Mm -hmm. fit. You've, you know, you've, you just have a lot of people weighing in and suddenly it's creativity by committee and it just must feel, you must be very aware of that. The, the pitch person is aware of sort of the importance of the moment and the one shotness of it. I would imagine yeah. with more well-known people, it's not all about this, you know, you have 20 minutes and, you know, the TV version of the pitch is very dramatic in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, have you, are there any, like, do not do this in a pitch? I'm telling you across the board, everybody's different, everyone's unique, but don't do this. I don't think so. I I think each show is so unique and each person pitching it is so unique that I I don't think I'm the expert to sit here and say, don't do this. And even what might not work for me, a colleague might like, you know, we're just all very different people. We all receive information differently. And so I think, you know, even in the development process of developing these scripts, it's not my job to tell someone that their apple should be an orange. It's my right. job to tell them how to make it more of an apple. Right. Um, so similar to that, I think that kind of applies to the pitches as well. Have you ever watched someone just be so nervous that your heart breaks because you just see them like derailing? The I've, seen, yes. I've seen a lot of, of nerves. Um, I've seen it all. And it's, I, 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 I can't even imagine it's, it's so hard. And especially when things are very personal too, and you're sharing a part of yourself, it's very vulnerable. Um, and so, you know, that's why I try on the other, on the receiving end of it, just to, you know, be empathetic and be, you know, sometimes, especially on zoom, sometimes you take yourself off mute and you know, what really gets people on zoom is the tech issues. If they're sharing yeah. their screen and it all derails. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and so, you know, we've, and again, we've seen it all even in two years. So it's all of us on my side and I never hear a pitch alone, by the way, it's always with at least one other person on my team. And we try and be as supportive and understanding as possible. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's human error. I know. You're like, and there's a big bowl of beta blockers right outside. If you want to take one before you come in. Um, <laughs> What is, so, so tell me a success story, like something that was pitched to you that you love, that you were able to kind of bring to a screen that I watch my content on. Oh, wow. Well, I, I did just mention Wolf Like Me, um, which again did come to us as a script. It came to us with the two stars attached and it also came to us with uh, a partner, a, a, distribution partner in Australia, which is kind of a unique, you know, a co-production with them. So, um, and that one we read, I think, you know, the other show I'm working on right now, um, is this TV series based on the Pitch Perfect franchise. And that was- Is Jason Moore, or any of the film 
Um, Elizabeth Banks, who directed and, and produced the films, or uh, and her husband, uh, Max Handelman, they have a production company called Brownstone. They are executive producers on it, and some of the original producers, Jason's not involved with, with this. Um, and Adam Devine, who plays Bumper Allen in the movies, is the lead of this show. Um, and so is it, he the Bumper? Show, he's Bumper. Okay. He's Bumper. So the show oh, follows perfect. Bumper and you Bumper's back and you see him kind of where he is in his life now. And he gets this opportunity to move to Berlin where he's told he's famous and he's going to pursue his singing dreams in Berlin. And he meets, um, if you've seen Pitch Perfect 2, there's um, a rival acapella group called Das Sound Machine. The leader of that group is uh, played by Flew LeBorg, who it plays a character named Peter Kramer and Peter Kramer is the one who brings Bumper to Berlin. Um, so the two of them are reunited. And then there's a whole ensemble cast around them. There's three amazing women, um, Sarah Hyland from Modern Family, Jamila Jamil from The Good Place, and um, a new, new to us actress named Lyra Aboba. Um, and they kind of form this new you know, 2022, 2023 version of a Pitch Perfect ensemble. Um, and that, you know, it's obviously a piece of IP that is a universal film, universal NBC. It's all the same company. And, Intellectual property for kids yes. at home. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Elizabeth uh, and Max had uh, been working with the film group to try and figure out a way to do a, a TV series. And then that came to us. And so, you know, we were really kind of, in those early conversations of what the show could, you know, potentially be about. And obviously it's a huge franchise. There's a lot of characters, what makes the most sense. And they sort of landed on maybe it being uh, Adam Devine who plays Bumper um, and then brought in Megan Amram, who has a deal with Universal Television, which is the studio that we work with a lot. It's internal. Um, and Megan had just been coming off of The Good Place among many other shows and just kind of pitched the show and had this great idea and it, it went from there and it was very it was very fast it was very whirlwind um and so really been a part of that you know working on that for so long and I went to Germany when they were filming the first couple episodes and um it's been really cool and I think also going back to you know my love of theater and musicals to get to work on a musical is a dream come true. And um, so, you know, the show will be on sometime, we don't know exactly when yet, but hopefully sometime this year. And um, it's, I think people will really love it. And that's just been, you know, a one that's been fast and furious, but a really good example of a show from the beginning. And the other thing I think people don't realize about development, maybe they do, 95% of what we work on doesn't end up going anywhere. Um, you know, you develop a ton of scripts, uh, you sometimes make pilots of those scripts and then sometimes those pilots go to series and then on the streaming world sometimes you know you develop a lot of scripts and then you they usually just go straight to series and but for every pitch perfect you know there's 15 scripts behind it that unfortunately don't get made and um, it doesn't mean you don't you love them any less it's just there's so many reasons why things get made and why they don't. But it must be an amazing feeling when you can say yes to somebody's dream being fulfilled yeah. in this way. And it must feel really awful when you have to say no. It is. It, it's um, 
it's hard. And I think, again, it's so hard being on the other side of it because it can feel very emotionally removed and it is really hard to say no. And it really is hard to say, you know, we have to pass on this. You become emotionally invested in these projects and um, most things are really good and people, there's so much talent. There's so many talented people um, and you just can't make all of them. Um, And it's a really special thing though, on the other side of it, when you see something from a kernel of an idea to then being produced and then airing or streaming and people watching it. And you say like, oh, like I had the smallest part in working on this, but I did. And it's really cool to see other people's dreams realized and know that you maybe helped them in some way. You mentioned that before we started recording that one of the reasons you're here uh, is for something called the upfronts. And that is a phrase that people hear a lot. What are the upfronts? The upfronts are where the networks and streaming platforms present their shows to the advertising community. Um, It used to be before the streaming platforms kind of were very more prominent. It used to be for the the broadcast networks where they present the fall schedule to the advertisers to sell spots, to sell commercials. Um, And you would have had made all these pilots in the spring And then you would have decided which of those pilots you're going to order to series. And then you'd present those new shows along with all of your returning shows and the calendar of this is going to be Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, et cetera. Um, And you present it in a big room at Lincoln Center or Radio City, wherever it is. Um, And then with the cast, with cast members. There's, there's sometimes musical performances. It's, it's a whole song and dance basically um now what a lot of the companies including mine do is it's a presentation you know for sort of the whole of the company it's nbc it's peacock it's the cable networks it's you know here's here's our our new shows here are returning shows that we want to highlight um you know peacock is an ad driven platform and it's kind of presenting the company as a whole and here are the opportunities within our company Um, and so all shows and talent from all over the place, from scripted to unscripted, et cetera, are, are there kind of promoting, promoting their show. Do you feel at this point confident in what you do? And I don't mean that every day, you know, you know, what to say or, or what to decide every second, but do you feel like I, I'm confident in my job? In some ways, yes. Um, I'm sure like every other millennial, I have the same amount of imposter syndrome that everyone else does. Um, but I, I do. And I, I think I, I feel confident that I know enough to know what I don't know, if that makes sense, and to always yeah. ask questions yeah, and always try and learn from the people I'm with um, or working with. And But I feel confident in my ability to to do my job to give notes to read a piece of material and try and identify what could be improved or what's working what's not working um so yeah i think i think it depends on the day what i love about my job is that it changes all the time 
there's always new things. There's always new people. There's always a new way of doing something. There's always a new goal to reach. And so every day it's like, okay, what now? And it's also a really collaborative job. And I get to work with really great people um, externally, but also my own team of people. And we support each other. We do notes together. We hear pitches together. Um, and I couldn't do it without those people. And I think when you know you have that support, you're not you're not on your own. That is really what makes you feel confident and able to do your job effectively. Um, I'm just really in awe of you and I and it's just such a lesson in like eye on the prize and work hard. Before I let you go, um, <laughs> is there a little known fact about you that you can share? Uh, you told me you were gonna ask me this and then okay. I, I didn't I didn't think I didn't think it through. Um, I mean my fun fact that I tell everyone when I'm asked for a fun fact is that um, I'm ambidextrous. Um, I write with my left hand and I throw with my right hand and I eat with both hands, which is something I didn't think was abnormal until I was an adult and someone pointed it out to me. They're so, like, wait, you're not moving your fork back to the other hand nope. after you get just, your I just do. I, yeah, I just do what I want, I guess. Well, <laughs> so. I think that makes sense. I think you have a very powerful right brain and left brain. Yeah, um, that's a good way of looking at way it. Way of being in the world. It, they, they work very, uh, in sync with each other. And I love you. And um, love you. I'm so proud of you. And thank you thank for you. doing this today. And uh, I can't wait to share this with everybody. Thank you. This was so fun. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.